Welcome everyone to the season seven premiere of The Scuttlebutt. We have a great episode planned for you today. Joining me will be Douglas Terrell. He is the producer and writer of The American Soldier, a play, um, as you will find out, that has gone through uh, a very extensive research and development and production history. Um, Douglas is not a veteran. He has written a play that highlights veteran service from the American Revolution all the way up through the post 9-11 generation. This is a, a play and a pet project that he has workshopped for several years. And I'm so excited to bring him onto the program, especially as a fellow non-veteran, to talk about uh, why veteran stories, why he's passionate about veteran stories and what led him to write this play, uh, produce it, uh, dive into the history of these veterans from history all the way up through until today, where the play is at now, the many phenomenal reviews that he has uh, garnered uh, from this production. Um, it's a really interesting story. And we get into that. For those of you who have been following the Scuttlebutt for several seasons, you know that I have a passion uh, for veterans and art, um, trying to understand why veterans come out of service and the type of art that they use to tell their story. This tells the story, I think, from a different angle. You know, a, a, a non-veteran who is very passionate about these stories, who has taken that and developed a piece of art that he can then uh, tour around to many different cities and uh, and help to bridge that military civilian divide, really sort of educate uh, young people, educate their audiences, bring this to veterans and honor them. Um, I'm sure you'll find out through our conversation uh, the amount of research and uh, and sweat that he has put into this play uh, is very inspirational. Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation. I personally would love to bring him to the Western PA region and have him perform this play uh, for our veterans in this in this community. Thank you so much for watching the podcast and listening. And please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And make sure you check out Douglas and his website. We'll have that in the description. And if you're watching this in Western PA and you think the same thing as me, as you want to bring this to us, let me know um, because there are several theaters that I, I am connected with in sort of my theater history past that I think would be a wonderful space uh, for this production. Uh, I think this community would really benefit from hearing uh, this story and seeing his show. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and thank you so much for, for supporting the pod. So joining me today for the Scuttlebutt, I'm really excited for this conversation. Douglas, thank you so much for, for being on the program. Douglas Terrell, um, uh, you are the uh, writer and director, producer of The American Soldier, is that correct? I am the writer and the producer. I'm not the director. It was directed, has many different ghosts from, as directors, but Patrick Lillis was the, uh, the the original director of the play. This is this is so excellent. I think people who have listened to the, the Scuttlebutt before know my sort of like history and passion about performing arts and uh, theater and, and uh, veteran stories as well. So this aligns perfectly with that. Douglas, I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. And it's a pleasure to be on. Uh, my name is Douglas Terrell. I'm a professional actor. I, um, I've been acting since uh, a long time, since, might be 97, 98. Um, and um, I wrote this play called The American Soldier. Um, I, I wrote it about 20, I, I started working on it in about 2008. Um, and I first performed it in, in, in 2015 in the Lower East Side of Manhattan for about eight people on a rainy Memorial weekend. And what I thought was going to be a one-time performance since then has been kind of an artistic journey and a mission. It's been to 34 cities, 23 states. It's been to the Kennedy Center twice, Library of Congress, uh, Off-Broadway, many other notable spaces. And 
it's a play that keeps going and it's a play that it's uh, its goal is to basically honor veterans in the military families and also to give you know general uh, audiences a sincere uh, idea of what, what sacrifice and commitment is and make them help us all appreciate what that is. Excellent. And you started acting right around the same time I did, right in that sort of 97, 98 uh, time frame. Um, yeah. so, and what's interesting also aligns is that 2008 was when the Veterans Breakfast Club started. And uh, the executive director, he started by just talking with some World War II vets about a book he wrote about the um, famous uh, cartoonist from World War II, uh, um, uh, Bill Maudlin. Yep. And this sort of, you know, exploded from there. So that's it, interesting that this sort of aligned. But um, there's so much I want to get into just with your particular history, because you're not a veteran like myself. And uh, do you come from a military family? I'm trying to, I'm interested in as to where the passion for veteran stories came from. So um, I'm not a veteran and I do have family who, who have served and who are serving. My sister served in the army, uh, had a nephew who was in the Marines for a while. Uh, and I had two nieces in the, in the reserves who um, I think each did a tour in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. But I got the idea the patriotism really comes from my dad. My dad was an immigrant from this, uh, from Argentina. He was Jewish. He was always very grateful. He was very uh, true to immigrants of that generation. Um, he was always very uh, grateful to be an American and and for America. Um, he he remember very vividly, you know, what World War II was about and the sacrifices that uh, U.S. and many of the Allied forces did to free. Uh, the Jews in, in in concentration camps up in Germany. And so from a very early age, he was always very patriotic as an American. <clears throat> and he kind of instilled that patriotism in me. It's funny because he used to, there used to be a uh, a documentary TV show it used to come on when I was a kid. It was called uh, World at War. <laughs> and he used to watch that over and over and over and over again. And I used to just get so annoyed <laughs> with him watching it like, <laughs> surely there's got to be something else you can watch you know and it had this one it always started with this one kind of like this really catchy promo sound you know it had like a b uh, b52 or, or a b17 bomber and when it would come down and then they would say world at war and you'd hear it in the, i'd hear that sound in my bedroom you know and and it, it it's actually, nuts oh it's just because you know he he'd watched every episode over and over. I mean, he was addicted to it. So the irony is that here I am now with the American soldier kind of doing the same thing as he used to do. That's not the start of your show though. You don't hear the, the same. No, yeah. no, no, I don't. No, you don't. Uh, that would be awesome. World at war. <laughs> That'd get people really excited. Um, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that, you know, obviously that subconsciously that, that patriotism instilled in me, you know, and I was always very patriotic. I grew up in Texas, which is a very a fairly patriotic state, mm -hmm. uh, and didn't think much of it, you know. But then 9/11 happened, mm -hmm. and I was coming out of the north. I came out of the North Tower. About I used to work down in the financial district, so um, I, I came out of the tower eight minutes uh, uh, before um, the first plane hit. Wow! So I, I got to. I don't know if I got to experience, but I experienced all of 9-11 firsthand, um, you know, seeing the buildings being hit, seeing the second plane, seeing the buildings fall in front of me, hiding in the building, whether the plume of dust come down Whitehall Street. Um, so 
as we, if we remember 9-11, that at that time in the country, it was night and day to where we are today. It was a very patriotic time in the country. You couldn't even buy an American flag. I mean, they were all sold out. Yeah. So that kind of started, you know, me and I, I, my patriotism kind of kicked in. You know, what my dad had subconsciously taught me about America, being, mm-hmm. uh, being lucky, being fortunate to be born in this country, the great things that veterans have done. And so then, obviously, we got heavily into the Middle East. And I started, I was really fascinated as I started paying attention to what was happening in Iraq and Afghanistan and started reading the papers and reading the stories. And I just kind of fell down a rabbit hole and it just became something that I was really passionate about. And then I'd say probably in 2005, 2006, we started hearing stories of maybe 2007. It's been so long now that sometimes I, I get a little foggy on the dates, but so stories of vets who couldn't pay their bills started to come in and and who were, we were just starting to hear the stories of suicide. Mm-hmm. And so being in New York, I kind of thought, you know, everything was, you know, New York is a very, it tends to be a very jaded place. And so, you know, as, as hard as 9-11 was, New York was trying to move on, you know, and that, that tends to be a recurring theme when a nation's at war, um, society tries to move on. They try, you know, war is so, uh, it's just hard to deal with. And so as a society, you try to move on, but we've, unfortunately what happens is vets get left behind. And that was true in World War One, and that was very true in World War II. Um, you know, a lot of vets came back from both those conflicts and found themselves lost when the society, when, when the nation was moving on, you know, um, the war was over in their minds and we had done, you know, uh, four or five years of whatever that was, and it was time to move on, but obviously, you know, in many vets' minds, six months or a year earlier, they were deep in combat. Mm-hmm. So that was really challenging for them. Right. So that was very true, obviously, and it's still true with what was happening in the Middle East. And it <clears throat> started to affect me. Uh, I didn't, you know, there's a couple of stories that really moved me, and I just thought, uh, I didn't think it was really fair for um, vets to do multiple tours in, in, in war and come back and you couldn't pay your bills or or you're dealing with suicide. Uh, paying the bills, the financial uh, challenges that a lot of vets faced uh, really bugged me. So I really fell deeper into the rabbit hole and I started you know, reading. And then a friend of mine, a bunch of friends said, you know, you sounds like you're really passionate about this. Why don't you try to write a play about it? Yeah. And so that's why. If I may interrupt, when you say yeah. uh, fell into a rabbit hole, you mean like historically reading about veterans or like talking with more veterans? Uh, you know, what were you diving into? Just really, the story that was happening in, in the paper, and okay. then really, really wanting to understand this um, this American theme about veterans. Yeah, you know, I didn't really know much about it, and so I was reading stories, and then in the paper at that time, you know, paper was ten was really the newspapers were really non biased, and so they were pretty objective, and so they would bring up stories of World War II when they were talking about guys of suicide or even World War One, and they were talking mm-hmm. about different sacrifices. So you, it just became an interest. Mm-hmm. So I, well, one, I'm a history freaking nut. I love history. I I, I fall into history uh, rabbit holes all the time. Yeah. Um, so it became something really exciting for me. And then, you know, as an actor, whenever I would play a role, I would always approach it from the history side. I did... Um, when I did George and Oak Mice and Men, I started looking up videos of the Great Depression that were online. I started reading. I started going to the New York Library, had to research what was the Depression like. You know, what, what was really, you know, uh, you know, communism was what was 
learning about communism in California, learning about how people coming from Oklahoma and different parts of the middle part of the Dust Bowl were called immigrants into California and the challenges they had. So, you know, that was always the way, it was always an interest for me. And, and that started as a kid. I always had a passion for history. So falling into this veteran and military and historical, American historical rabbit hole was not a far, it's not, was not difficult for me to do. So I started in between auditions, I would go to the New York Public Library and I would just started looking up, um, looking for books um, that, dealt, that had letters from veterans, trying to see what I can learn. And, you know, I, was, I would go to the New York Public Library and I just, again, fell another rabbit hole. I would go in there. I became addicted to going to the New York Public Library and there was so much information there. I mean, there was books. I mean, there's so many books about so many different veterans and families of veterans and of different wars and, and topics of uh, uh, topics of veterans. And, and then I would look at microfish. I don't even know uh, yeah. what yeah. microfish is. And you know, <laughs> I, I would just, I would look up what what the country state was during Vietnam War and what the country state was during World War One, and you look up all these New York Times microfish mm -hmm. and you read and and again I so then I'd started reading these books and just looking through letters of that vets that had been comprised of veterans and I would Xerox them. Mm -hmm. I would I would just take copies of them and keep them home and take them and work on them and it got to a point where I just had a stack and then it's in that closet in there I mean, it just had a stack of of veteran letters uh, that I just became obsessed with. And I didn't know what to do with it, to be honest with you. It became to a point where um, I was kind of getting lost in research. I mean, it was just like, uh, you know, when you try to write a play about war, the, the um, I mean, <laughs> you, you yeah. can go, what do you want to tell about war? You know, right. which war, how, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it, it's it's endless, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an ocean. Yeah. So a lot of people didn't know what to do. I would talk to a lot of people, you know, I've got this idea. I want to do a play for veterans, you know, and I want to tell their story. And they're like, well, how, what do you want to do? I mean, they were just as lost as, as I was, you know, and um, um, I, it, I started just reaching out to people and asking for help. And, uh, and I had a lot of people who told me, no, like, you know, people were like, I don't know. People are really interested in what you're trying to do. That's uh, you know we're kind of past that now, you know, because 9/11. At this time, you know, I think I was in 2010, 2011. It kind of started as a hobby, you know, the research, and then it became more serious, and right. then it, it just started growing in, in passion. Mm -hmm. and, and by 2011, 2012, I had all this research, and I was like, I gotta, you know, I need to figure out how what to do with this. And were you writing a little bit? here and there during this point no. or yeah okay so it's no, yeah, it had to start just to... collecting 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 right. and i was kind of hoping for the easy answer for someone to say oh i know what to do with that you know and, and this is what we do you know and yeah. that never happened uh, and then i reached out i i had the opportunity because i was so involved in new york and the new york theater scene that i was connected to some really um uh respected artists and i think it was doing when I was doing George and Up My Cement, I, someone told me about Alec Baldwin teaching a workshop in the Hamptons. And so uh, I signed up, and uh, which is a pretty crazy story how I got into that workshop, but mm -hmm. I signed up and I got accepted. And I, I, got, you know, I got to study with Alec Baldwin two, three summers in a row, which was really cool. Wow. As crazy as he is, he's an amazing artist yeah. and he's really well-read and he's really astute. And 
um, his theater, uh, he's a really smart guy. As crazy as he is, he's a really, really smart guy. And yeah. he understands theaters. He understands playwrights. He understands the work, the the art of working on stage. Yeah, uh, yeah. If you could just pull away everything we know about him now, but um, he would have been an amazing director. He's just, you know, um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but still working with him, yeah, it, it certainly. It was, yeah, it was great. It was honed. So, and then I had, uh, how did I try to remember? But I had been connected to. Oh, Craig Lucas, he, you know, he's a playwright and he, he's written a lot of stuff and he's been, I think he's won a Pulitzer. Um, he wrote Piazza and then he wrote Prelude to a Kiss was his biggest, which was, was made by a movie. Yeah. And, um, and he was teaching a play, uh, a play workshop class. And again, I was like, well, at that time I was trying to create a play. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't really thinking it was going to be a one man show. So I took his playwriting class and it became, um, it was really great, you know, and he was, he's, he's, he was another great teacher. And so I told him about my idea because he had, you know, he, he asked everybody to bring their material into class to write the material. And I told him, look, I'm not really interested in writing a play, but I am interested in turning this material into a play. Well, he said, we'll bring it into class. He was the first one that said, you know, I don't think you actually have a play. I think what you have is a one man show. And so I was like, wow, one man show and was really intimidated to do a one man show. I never thought I could do a one man show. I never mm -hmm. thought that I would have the ability to create a one man show. And he says, no, you can do it. And he says, you know, you just need to find the right director. And so I had reached out to him and I'm still in contact with him and he's still been very generous. We always, we communicate via email and over phone sometimes. And mm -hmm. uh, I, he's been a great mentor to me. And he connected me with a, a director who's who and this is a really good lesson for everybody to remember you know you you know success is never a straight line and it zigzags and it goes around and it comes back but the main thing is to keep going and keep knocking on doors and eventually you keep you know finding your way up and yep so he connected me with this director her name was uh julia i forgot her last name and she was a pretty reputable regional theater she was really kind she said listen I'm really busy right now and I don't even know if I can, you know, jump on board, but there is a, a, a playwriting company that I think you should reach out to and they might be interested. So I said, okay. Um, you know, uh, never, they all, what I teach younger actors, you know, a no doesn't mean no, it just means another opportunity to go in a different direction. Yeah. And so I said, well, can would you, can I get their contact information? She goes, yeah. So she sent me, it was called the lab. It was called the uh, rat called the rat playwriting group <laughs> and in that group i recognized the name who i had i had become friends with and worked with at the alec baldwin workshop mm -hmm. so i reached out to her her name was diane um really talented actress uh really sweet and she said look we're not really taking this kind of material but um i think i know of a director who who um who is mm -hmm. and that was patrick and yeah. so i had reached out to patrick and i said look i have this play I'm really interested in it and um, I'm interested in, in, you know, doing something with it. And so he said, well, why don't you, why don't we meet um, in a studio and show me what you have? And I should take a step back before I got to that process. I had gotten really frustrated that I couldn't figure it out. And I had literally thrown all the research into the trash can mm. and my wife was, I got really frustrated and she was like, um, 
uh, no, you're not going to do that. You're not going to throw stuff in the trash can. And so she pulled it back out and she said, look, why don't you just memorize one of your favorite pieces in all this research? You know, mm-hmm. do what you, you know, focus on what you do as an actor, treat it as a monologue and just memorize it. And it's another powerful lesson, you know, just, you know, you, if you focus on the, sometimes you can get lost in paralysis by analysis, but if you just focus on basics, you know, like just memorize a piece, things yeah. will start to unravel from there. Mm-hmm. And so I did, I memorized two pieces and I had been prepared. And so those were the two pieces that I had showed Patrick. Yeah. Um, and he was like, well, that was really interesting. And he was, you have any more? And I said, yeah, I've got quite a bit, I have a quite a bit more. Yeah. Um, and so we worked on it together and then I decided to take it into a solo show workshop, a guy named Matt Hoverman who writes for Disney right now. And I said, well, let, let me go in there and get really honed in on the solo show workshop idea, you know, while working with Patrick. And so the combination of what was great about that class is that at that time, you know, I didn't have any kids. I had, my son was born, but he was really young. So I had a lot more time in my hands, but I was able to, we had this deadline, which is another great lesson to remember for actors. You know, every week you had to have this, whatever the the um, the lesson was for that week, you had to come in uh, at the end of the week and you had to perform something. Mm-hmm. It was mandatory, right? So you could procrastinate all the way Monday. I think it was a Monday class, but you can procrastinate all the way from that Tuesday to Sunday, but Monday you had to perform something. And so that always forced you to do, to prepare, to have something ready to go. So I would bring in different pieces and, and I would get notes. And, and from there, it started, I started to workshop different pieces of letters that worked and that didn't work. And I would get feedback and then I would take that with Patrick. And then we started kind of gelling and molding it together. And then, so we had, we had, after that piece, you know, I performed it. And and at the end of the workshop, you had another major deadline where you had to perform. You had to be not all the way off book, but you had to be soda arts, pretty much off book. You had to do 20 minutes of your play. So yeah. you did this, you know, you did this class, I think it was four weeks or five weeks, I can't remember. And at the end of the class, you had a performance. You had a 20 minute solo show performance. Mm-hmm. And you had to do it. Which again, the the having that deadline just it just forces you to do it. Right. You know, uh, I heard, you know, when I was researching this, some of the best advice I heard about creating a solo show is book the theater first. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. yeah. Book the theater first and then, you know, you'll work backwards from there. So right. I did it, you know, and um, it, it sucked, to be honest with you. I mean, there were moments that I felt were really powerful, but for the most part, it was, I was all over the place. It just, uh, you know, it it just wasn't, you know, polished yet, but Mm -hmm. I did it. You know, I took all this material and I crafted it and I squeezed it into a 20 minutes of something and I was able to perform it. But, you know, once you have, something you can break it you, you can work on it again right you know it's like uh you know you have the foundation to you know to build the walls to start adding the backyard and everything and so right um that's that's the biggest obstacle for any artist is just to get that foundation in and not to be worried about if it's any good or if people are going to like it it's really to get that foundation and from there you can build so by having that foundation, me and Patrick, we can look at it and we can say, well, let's add this, let's add, let's take away this, let's try it. And so we did that, we worked on it. 
he kind of came on board and he said, well, let's just, you know, let's, let's work on it a little bit more and let's see if we can show it to some theater people and let's see what they think of it. Right? Right. Cause again, we're still shooting in the dark here. Well, let so, me ask you a question about that 20 minute version, because that's a, that's much short. The, the current version of the play is 90 minutes. I'm guessing 90 minutes to two hours, 85, 85 minutes. Um, so to, a 20, speaking from an actor's perspective, a veterans who may be listening to the podcast, like you stand up on stage and you do a 20 minute monologue. That is a, that's a lot to remember expand that to 85 minutes you you know you're looking at all the letters all the research you had done and it, was it just taking those letters and memorizing those or was it sort of rewriting adding sort of some fictional elements dramatic uh tension different yeah. things like that sort of uh fleshing them out a little bit more was that was that sort of what this 20 minute version was yeah you had to so the thing about veteran letters and vets know this um a lot of their letters are boring, you know, I mean, they talk about, you know, uh, like, for example, in the revolution, uh, those were really boring. Um, you know, today I went and shot monkfish tomorrow. And so I would get these books that had literally data entries of certain soldiers. Tomorrow we go eat monkfish. Yesterday we go to Sally's house looking forward to eating monkfish. Today I shot my, my, I shot my, I shot my, uh, my, my musket, you know, you're like, okay, god is there anything interesting yeah but that research you're like okay there's got to be so then you research you start get, get, getting ideas how to research and you say uh famous revolutionary soldier letters mm -hmm. you come up with you know and then information comes up joseph plum and ebenezer fox these were these very well these are these diaries from revolutionary minutemen who wrote these amazing diaries mm -hmm. uh like really well educated and they told a whole different story i mean they actually you could read their stuff, you know, mm -hmm. um, and um, so you would find nuggets of stuff and you would Xerox in, like I would find a piece like, um, there's a lot of pieces in the revolutionary that I had, but, uh, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, I'm trying to think in my head, trying to do the play, but there's one mm -hmm. bit where Ebenezer Fox, he says, you know, uh, he's talking to, uh, it was an older man in, in, in a revolutionary. He was talking about, uh, he was part of the French and Indian War, and he said, uh, "You know, uh, war is war is hard. It's it's very hard. You know, uh, jagged shards of wood go into men's faces. Horses shriek, soldiers cry, uh, uh, guns are blasting everywhere. The ground is covered with the, with the dead, and the air resounds with the groans of the dying." So you'd come across that, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, that's mm -hmm. poetry almost." You know? Yeah. You Xerox that and you put it away and you get a bit of different bits. So when we were putting things together, I should also say in that first 20 minutes version, I had a lot of revol revolutionary stuff, a lot, because that's what I, the idea that I had from 9-11 was I'm going to remind people what this country stood for during the revolution so we don't forget what veterans were going for. That was the original idea. And I had some Shakespeare because Shakespeare talks about PTSD as well. We did have, an episode on the podcast of Shakespeare and veterans and, and just the universal language that they, that he yeah, was speaking yeah. at that time. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, the second part of Henry the fourth starts with Hotspur and Kate and Kate telling him, you know, why won't you come to back to my bed? You don't smile anymore. Mm -hmm. You're always, you're always, you're always laid up, at, up late at night. So, so anyhow, so yeah, so I would, so you had, a, you would take pieces and then, 
you, you had to make a beginning, a middle, and an end. So maybe on some pieces you'd find the end and you'd make the beginning in the middle and some pieces you found the, the beginning so you'd have to make the middle and the end. Or in, in some letters they were intact. So I have a couple of letters in my play that are fully intact. But other pieces you had to put different pieces because you have to create an arc and um, you have to tell a story and you, you, know, you only have, you know, theater, you're only limited to the, all art is limited to the, whatever medium you're in, it's limited to the platform you're on. So if yeah. you're telling a film, you only have two hours. And if you're on stage, you have 90 minutes to 120 minutes. That's all you could tell, right? You, you could have a lot more to tell, but at the end of the day, the theater has to, has to, has to empty it out and, and, the, and the movie has to end. Yeah. So you have to create arcs. So, and Patrick was really great with that, you know, and he says, that's really interesting. And so when we did the, uh, when we got it to whatever it was, you know, 15, 20 minutes, he said, well, let's get an audience. So I knew some people, my wife knew some people who were part of Playwrights Horizons, which is a big theater down in yep. Manhattan. And so uh, I invited them all. I knew some friends who were in, in theater. So I invited them, it was like five or six people. I invited them to, um, um, a, a studio and I showed him what we had, you know, we rehearsed it and that was our, that was really the first performance. Mm -hmm. A lot of revolutionary pieces. I had Shakespeare in there and, and, you know, we, again, so now we go, so I'm now I'm getting more feedback, right? So we're getting more feedback from this research. And, you know, one of the things was uh, the Playwrights Horizon guy said, I think you have something there. I think you have a lot of revolutionary stuff. Uh, it's too many, it's too male heavy. Um, I think you need more balance. He says, you know, I don't know if Shakespeare works really, you know, it's a great idea, but I just don't think it's fitting in. So me and Patrick got together. We had our, you know, we took our, our feedback from that. And he said, um, um, you know, you want to keep going. I think, I, you know, let's find a festival. But if we do that, we need to, we need to give the play more balance. So you need to go back and do more research. And I was like, I remember when he told me that I was like, oh. jump off a bridge. <laughs> oh yeah it was like you gotta be kidding me because uh he goes don't and, and he i made it really simple for me because don't don't go to the library or anything you have the information just try to find some female pieces try to find some children pieces try to find some different pieces that are not soldiers you know yeah. we have to give the play balance and when i was creating this play and i kept talking about this play with everybody and and that's also a good lesson for people to do is you know when you have a big goal talk about it with everybody because people hear about what you're trying to do and they want to help you. Yeah. So, and so I was talking to a bunch of different people. And so they would send me material and, and, you know, I would get podcast interviews and then people they say, Oh, I heard this great podcast, you know, and at that time we were heavy in the middle East. And so everything was, it was all over the place. And so, yeah. um, and I would keep everything in a file and I would listen to it. And um, uh, I, I remember just going through those files. And so I, I started finding, I found a piece Someone had given me a book called um, Love Letters from War, and it had a letter in there from a mother, um, uh, Eleanor Wimbish, who goes up to the Vietnam Memorial Wall, says goodbye to her son who died in 68, uh, uh, William R. Stocks. And so I found that letter and I was like really moved. I was crying and I was like, okay, that's a letter I got to keep. So I, I started digging back in and researching from what everybody had given me, and, and I found more material. So we, worked on it again and we added this piece and we took away this piece and and we added you know the a child piece that I heard from a podcast and I heard of a veteran who um, lost his son who committed suicide in Iraq um, uh, uh, 
Kevin and Joyce Lucy, and I heard them on a podcast, and I was really moved by that. So I transcribed that into a letter. And so um, I can I, ask a question about, can I ask a question about that? Because yeah. talked about sort of reading a story and it bringing you to tears or being really affected by that. Uh, and, and maybe you share this, but I've noticed that, uh, you know, take me back 10 years, I would hear a story about veterans or I'd hear a story about a, a serviceman or woman dying mm -hmm. in Iraq or Afghanistan. And I wasn't really affected by it as a civilian. Um, you're a very, very rare breed that you sort of got into it and started following these wars over the last 20 years and the people yeah. that were involved in it. And it was, you know, we talk about military civilian divide a lot here on the podcast and that many civilians just don't understand the military, don't understand, you know, the veteran experience, things like that. Um, as you continued your research and found more passion in these stories, I, I'm assuming and from what you said that these stories affect you a lot more emotionally now. They are more human. There's there's a, a weight to these when you read them that may not have affected you 20 years ago, well before you started into this research. Is that something that you found? I know that when I watch like a movie about war now, I'm way more affected by it because I've heard more of these stories from veterans. Yeah, well, once you get, you know, once you have a reference point, you become more, um, uh, you have... You have more of a reference point. You understand what's going on. Like if you if you studied Iwo Jima, you when you see a movie on Iwo Jima, you understand what that was all about. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, actors are what I I like to say athletes of the heart. And so um, you know you have to have, I mean, to be a good actor, you have to have a level of of of, of sympathy and empathy. You know, and so the that you know. The, the difference between someone who acts and someone who doesn't act is, is, is that actors are willing to wear their emotions on their sleeves and are they're willing to share them. Uh, if a guy who, you know, works in construction or whatever, does, does sales or whatever, they may have the same emotions, but they're not, they haven't been trained and they're not willing to share those emotions so, and unless they're by themselves or with their family, right? Where actors are willing to put on that mask and share them with, with, with the world. And that's, so if you have that ability, when you come across those stories, that becomes uh, something more organic for you. And so you become more moved by them. And, and for me personally, I was always moved by the human story. And, and you know, the play, besides, you know, it is a, a play for veterans and, and their families, but it's also, uh, it's, it's a human story. It's the human condition, you know, what happens to people and, 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 what does it mean to lose a son or a daughter or what does it mean to be a wife alone on you know cooking dinner for their child you know and so those are all human stories and they're all relevant and we all can connect to those in many different ways even if you're not uh, uh you know a soldier or a serve which is i think is why the play has still been successful because people find a connection to it um and you know er for the most part everyone knows someone who served or did or kind of served or in their family or friends so you're you know i mean a, a very common reaction from people who have no connection to the military says wow you know i have to go talk to my uncle now i need to go, i need to go talk to my aunt you know i never thought about what you know what you were saying i didn't think about their service the way you the way you presented it mm -hmm. so um but yeah, this, I mean, is, this speaks to when in doing the research on the play before our conversation is that uh, I heard the word genuine brought up a, a lot. And I think yeah. uh, from what you're saying, like a lot of the research that you did added this very genuine aspect to it. A veteran wants to go and watch a play, it, you know, that deals, it, that speaks the language that they, that they speak, 
but that's 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 a, a difficult ask i would imagine if a veteran knows okay i'm going to go watch a play about a civilian playing a veteran where is the genuine aspect of this and does he understand my language it seems like very much so in this case yeah a lot of it's because i use their words right mm -hmm. I mean, the, the common thing i get from a lot of vets is i I've, you know the play's been fairly well known so people are starting to hear about it but uh but i still get the same question you know they always ask me did you serve mm -hmm. you know you know because they're like how the f do you know this information you yeah. know like, uh i remember some guy i think it was that again i was asked uh, a vietnam vet saw the play and he got me to perform for the american legion national headquarters in indianapolis and one guy came up to me and goes did you have intel for this stuff or like i mean like, it's like oh, man, this stuff is out in the public man. this is not intel yeah um so but yeah it's it's because i use their words you know and mm -hmm. uh um um, and you know, um, I tend, I tend to connect to really emotional pieces and dramatic pieces. That's always something, you know, I've always been interested in as an actor, as a performer. So I was, um, yeah, I was, I was just really connected to pieces, you know, and, and for the most part, you know, audiences can always, they can always tell if you're connected to something, you know, mm -hmm. audiences are pretty smart, you know, they can mm -hmm. tell if you're really, if you care about this material, if you don't, you know, or if you're just. You know, if you're just half-assing it, you know they they know, you know, yeah. and vets are going to pick that up. The they're going to pick that up in, in seconds. Yeah. Um. So you know, you, you know, another lesson for actors is like I always tell them, you know, make sure you're connected to the material because if you're not, it's going to suck doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're not going to do it really well because you're not going to have the passion to to really to do the hard stuff, which is the research and the and crafting and the rehearsing and all the stuff that comes with hard. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, art is hard, you know. And so, um, if you're not passionate about the piece that you're creating, then it, it's it's going to be miserable for you. Totally. So you remain. You're with Patrick. You're, you're reworking it for the festival at this point. Um, you know, how does it continue to develop? So, so then we, after that rehearsal for uh, that performance for five people, we got back together. We I brought in new material, and he said. We were still about 20, 25 minutes still at that point, but now we, we felt like we had more balance now. You know, mm -hmm. I, I had added a, the mother, I had added, um, uh, I'd had added uh, uh, a, a son, uh, I had added the father who loses his, his son, and uh, we took out Shakespeare, we took out a lot of revolutionary stuff. Um, and so he said, now, now what you have to do is go find a festival to go perform at. And so, uh, and, and and I, I was still in the solo show workshop. So I, now I was I was really now I, I I took another level of the of the workshop. And so now I took this material in, and I was being able to polish it more. You know, I was able to work on it more. So now everything was starting. It started from a ball of yarn. Now it was getting into starting to form something. You know, mm -hmm. and I was I was getting more confident in what I was doing, and and it was getting sharper. I was getting off book and. Uh, the next fest, the big festival at that time, this was 20, I think it was 2014, was the New York Fringe Festival, mm. which is a big festival in New York. And Huge, yeah. Yeah, so I, I had performed as an actor in the festival. He said, that's a perfect festival for you. So you should try to get into that. <laughs> of course, I put my application in and the festival shut down. They had some money problems. And they had shut down. I think they've, I don't even know if they've come back. I think they've just, they've come back a little bit, but it's, it's, it's never come back to the way it used to be, but uh, like many things, but um, 
yeah, they they canceled the festival because they had some huge uh, financial problems. And so I was like, oh, crap. And so that goes that festival. So then I then I started applying to other festivals. And um, I just got a lot of no's, really. Uh, couldn't get into a festival. People were like, eh, not really interested into that material right now. It sounds yeah, like so I feel like that so speaks to that military civilian divide of just like, yeah, we're not really doing veteran stories now. Yeah. Like people don't realize how important these stories are. Or that they're actually human stories. Yeah. You know, that's actually right. good theater, you know. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know oh, it's just... incredible theater. I, sorry, yeah, that yeah. that is something that going from theater myself to Veterans Breakfast Club, it's it's storytelling in a different way. But I wrote down here why, uh, why I've been listening is that uh, the, the, the amount of truth that is in all of these stories is what has captured me. That, yeah. that is something you, you sit in a theater, you watch, as we mentioned, like all my sons, and it's a beautiful, beautifully written show. Um, and when it's beautifully done and acted well, it, it draws you in in a way that most theater can't, um, yeah. as, a, as, as an example. But you sit down and you listen to a veteran story and you, and you a- attempt to understand where they're coming from, what they went through. Um, there is a level of truth in that that you can't find anywhere else. No, no, no. It's it's really, it's it, yeah. It's it's really powerful stuff, and mm-hmm. you you can learn from that. You know, as a nation, we can learn from it. But mm-hmm. you know, that's a whole other conversation. But that's also been something that many people have picked up on. That it, um, you know, I mean, I performed in red states, blue states, and the one thing that people always, the response is always the same. It's always you know. Because Democrats and Republicans both serve and they both and both have died for the nation. Mm-hmm. Um, blacks, Mexicans, Asians have died. Um, and you know, I've been connected with so many different veterans. I, I, I did a podcast with, with a Vietnamese uh, veteran. His parents came. I mean, I thought it was most fascinating story, one of the most fascinating stories in podcasts. He came across me and he asked me if, wanted, if I wanted to be on the podcast like you have. And I said, sure. And then I found out his parents came here during um, after the Vietnam War. They they basically after the fall of Saigon, they they found themselves coming here to the United States. They were immigrants. Uh, they came to California, and uh, I think his parents were they were in they were part of North Vietnam, and so people who don't understand the Vietnam War, you know, the Allies in South and the South Vietnamese were fighting the North Vietnamese because the North was mostly uh, uh, controlled and. and by the communists mm-hmm. at that time and he chose he he served he wanted to serve he became an air force he became an air force veteran and that was so crazy that was so to me that was so fascinating that this uh, his parents were saw that you know the the casualties of war in vietnam firsthand and now he's serving for the nation that his parents saw his country fight against you know and i thought it's you know it's 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 an insane story if you really if you really look at that from Mm -hmm. a human aspect you know right but i've um so that's always been the the reaction with the play that people are always thankful that um and i believe and why i'm pushing the play now the play is taking on different messages but i think the message now is that i feel like the men and women who have served and are serving they are the glue that can bring us back together and, and have kept us together. And the more people hear these stories, the more we can realize that we have more in common than we have um, not. Um, so that's always been the, uh, 
Um, there's always that's always been the beauty of the play. And so as I I couldn't find a festival, um, and New York Fringe Festival was gone. And I, I, at that time, I was I was quite content to basically say it's over because I had already done it for the solo show workshop. I had done it already um, uh, for the five people. You know, I've taken this. You know, we're in 2014 now. You have to remember, I I was really falling. I started kind of working on this in 2007, really mm -hmm. 2008. So you know, it's, it's taken up a lot of my attention and energy. Yeah. So that time I was like, okay, you know, took it as far as I could go. go. But then a festival who told me no had called me um, on, this was 2015, I believe it was, or the end of 2014 Memorial, it was Memorial weekend. So I think it was 2015. And it was on a, uh, the Monday of, I think Memorial Day is always Monday, right? And so. uh, uh, she said, look, I'm doing a festival um, for Memorial weekend. Uh, someone who was in the festival has dropped out. Uh, would you be interested in stepping in? And I said, yeah, sure. Because you just have to be off book, which I was. Mm -hmm. And um, it could only be like 20, 25 minutes. And I said, yeah, it's perfect. That's yeah. what I'm in. So she goes, I'm going to I'm gonna par you up with this other festival, this other performer. Her play was called Big Skinny. Uh, she was a really sweet girl. It was Her play was all about losing a lot of weight <laughs> And that and developing a, a different relationship with her father. Mm -hmm. I said, sure, whatever, man. I, I'm I get to play, you yeah. know. So I went first, she went second. And I remember doing I remember I went out and got a I got a shirt, I got some pants, and I remember just thinking it was a it was a rainy memorial Monday night. It was <laughs> I didn't want to I didn't want to go. I knew no one else was going to be in the, the theater. And usually as an actor, when you don't want to go, you know, the audience doesn't want to go. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was just like, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this on a Monday night. You know, it's going to be, it's going to suck, you know, and, and I did. And and there were, there was eight people and it was at the Bowery Poetry Club, which is this really iconic uh, uh, theater in the lower east side of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. It used to be a beat poetry club, beat poetry place for beat poets in the 60s and 70s. It's a mm -hmm. beautiful space. They've actually shot a couple commercials there. It's actually gorgeous. Uh, you can see pictures on my website, but it's, um, and so I, uh, you know, I, you know, we rehearsed for that. I, I, I told Patrick, Hey man, I, I got a yes. He said, great, let's do it. You know, we rehearsed a couple of times and, you know, you need a costume. He says, you know, you need to get a trunk. Let's get, no, did we get a trunk? No, we didn't get a trunk yet. I, I just had a costume. Just get a bunch of letters and let's do it. And so there's eight people there. I think I had three people for me. I had my director. I, I hired a friend who was an actress, who was a photographer. I said, come shoot. Uh, yeah, I just had two people. Yeah, I had a photographer and she had six people. So um, I had my director and my photographer there. And I, I, I got the photographer because I thought, I'm never going to do this again. This is going to be the end of it. You know, so I might, <laughs> I might as well capture it. Yeah, yeah. Said, you know, would you shoot it? She said, yeah, I'll shoot it. And so, um, and there's some of my favorite images. So I performed the play. It went really well. Um, way I was nervous as crap. Um, it was the, really the first time I was doing something like in front of kind of like a paid audience. Yeah, yeah. That was only eight people. It was a and it was a raised platform, and um, it was a really special place. And so, what happened was, I mean, I got like a little bit of a I got a standing ovation, but it wasn't the standing ovation that was really important. It was that that I felt the play had a voice. Like for the first time, I feel like it was starting to, there was moments in the play when I was doing it, I was like, 
oh, this is feeling really good. Like this is smoother than I thought it was going to be. And what happened was a uh, Gold Star sister, family member, she came up to me after the play and she said, uh, you know, I hope you know what you're doing is really special. I hope you don't stop. You know, and she told me she lost her brother in Afghanistan and she was in tears. And, and I said, well, you know, I don't know where it's going from here, but, you know, I gave her a hug and I said, thank you for your family service and for your brother's sacrifice. And, but because of the standing ovation and that reaction that that woman gave me, um, my director was like, for the first time, thought like, huh, maybe we're really onto something here that we don't really understand yet. You know, like, I think yeah. for the first time for him, he had an epith epiphany and he's like, there might be something here that we don't know. Yeah. And so he said, let's, uh, let's see if we can flush it out even more. And so I said, okay. Um, and, and, you know, I should take reignited a, it. Yeah. Yeah. And I should take a couple steps back. You know, the only reason why Patrick came on in the very, very beginning is because I paid him, right? So let me pay you for a couple hours work and let me see what you, and, and he was like, okay. And then I said, let me pay you to kind of craft 20 minutes of it. Right. But at that time, and Patrick, to speak of him, you know, he's been inducted into the Indie Theater Hall of Fame. He's a very well reputable solo show director in the in, in, in the in the, in the off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway world in Manhattan. So the whole time I was kind of feeling like, I hope he doesn't just bail on me any minute now, because I hope he doesn't, doesn't say, ah, this is really boring, man. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. Um, but after that performance, I felt for the first time that we were on level playing fields because he was like, you know, I think we're on to something here. This is really interesting. Yeah. So we flushed it out even more and we brought in more pieces and we had turned it into 40 minutes at that time. Um, and then he says, you just, now we have to find a festival for you to perform at uh, that will take a 40 minute uh, play. And so I was like, okay. Uh, so I had performed at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe in Scotland a couple of times. Mm, and yeah. Uh, I had a lot of success with that. And my wife is from Scotland and she had family there. So we said, um, my wife was the first one. She was like, uh, uh, why don't you just take it to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe? Mm -hmm. And I was really hesitant. I was like, oh, I don't want to, I'm going to take a play about American vets to this, to Scotland. That's going to go off horrible. Mm -hmm. She goes, no, it's not. She goes, they do all kinds of stuff there. So I said, I said, fine. You know, we talked about it. I said, it'd be one, it'd be great for us to go. I get to see my family again. You know, it'd be great for, we love the festival. It's a really special time in Scotland. And I said, uh, okay. And so, and at, at that time, I didn't even have a name for the play. Mm -hmm. It's called, you know, you know, I had brothers because of Band of Brothers. I think I was, but I was, I called it like Brothers We Are or Brothers Together. And then I was trying to like riff off, you know, Band of Brothers. And yeah. Uh, and they were asking for a name and I said, well, this name, doesn't, you know, this is a dumb name. She goes, why don't you just call it the American soldier? And I was like, that's a horrible name. I can't, goodness <laughs> gracious. I mean, she goes, well, that's what it is. It's, you're talking about the American soldier. Yeah. And I said, you know, and I remember just going, really? You think the American soldier? She goes, what's what you, you're going to play about the American soldier. I don't know why else, why, why you wouldn't call it that. And so I did, and you know, it stuck. And, so when I applied to the for the Festival Fringe, uh, I, I applied to the same theater that I performed back in 2005 as an actor. And I had a really good relationship with them. 
And they were like, oh, we would love to have you back, man. And they took me, they accepted me right away and I got to perform and I went there and, and but before I went there, um, there's a 59 East 59 theater in Manhattan, which is a reputable off-Broadway play. And they still do this. They, they do this thing called, um, it's called, uh, what's it called? East to Edinburgh. I have the, I have the program right there, East to Edinburgh. And it's basically all of New York festivals that are going to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, they get to come here to perform to show the New York audiences. These are the plays oh, that are going yeah. to, to Scotland. It gives, gives you a chance to see some of these Amer American plays going to Scotland. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, I, I, I said, yeah, and they reached out to me and I said, yeah, I'd love to do it, you know, and the price wasn't very expensive. And so I got this nice little space and I, and I called Patrick, he said, oh, that's perfect, man. You get two nights in an off-Broadway theater, you know, real full audiences would be a great way to get your sea legs in a way, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and I was nervous as that. And now that one, you know, it was a, he said, now, well, well, let's flush that. Let's, you know, let's get a set designer and let's get a lighting designer and let's get, a, you know, let's, you know, and so we, we came up with the set, you know, we got an army trunk and, you know, and then we got props and blah, blah, blah. We, you know, we, we, now it's gone from just me wearing a, a, you know, an army shirt, a uniform on stage at the Bowery Poetry Club to now, now we were a full production. We were a full play yeah. now. Right. We had, we had teched the the whole, um, uh, uh, we had created a lighting grid for it and everything. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had a beautiful space at the, at the 59 East 59 theater and um, the name, because of the name, a reporter, a journalist from the Huffington Post reached out to me. She said, you know, I'm reviewing all the plays in uh, at 59 East 59 for, for this festival. Uh, I'd like to review your play. Can I get a ticket? Mm -hmm. I remember getting that email going, I want to be reviewed. <laughs> I really don't want to be reviewed by anybody. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember telling my, my, my director and she was like, he was like, uh, gotta give her a ticket, but he can't say no to her. Yeah. <laughs> That's not going to be good. Right. It says, you know, you don't know what's going to come of it. So yeah. So I gave her a ticket and I had two good houses. Um, you know, I had a lot of friends who came to support it. A lot of his friends mm -hmm. came to saw it and, you know, and, we had a catchy name, the American Soldier, mm -hmm. which was really catching people's attention. And we're in this kind of this group, section of theaters. They have small black boxes, and um, people were, were just coming in to see this play called The American Soldier. You know, so in many ways, my wife's name that she found was uh, me. And my wife's been an integral part of this play. Um, yeah, um, seems so. Yeah, and so. And that found that review that reviewer and so anyway i had two great shows and uh she loved it mm -hmm. i mean she gave me a, a a glorious review and what was important about that review is i was able to take that to scotland because when you go to the festival fringe in scotland it's called the super bowl of theaters because mm -hmm. there's i mean at that time when i did the so when i performed in 2005 there was 1500 plays when I performed in 2015, there was 3,500 plays coming there. And so wow. what happens is Broadway plays go there, West End plays go there. A lot of plays use the Edinburgh Festival Fringe as a, um, as a workshop in a way yeah. to, get, <clears throat> to get their legs or to get reviews mm -hmm. and then they, or to test the play, just, just to test it. Like, let's see if it does really well. And yeah. there's, you know, I mean, there, the plays go from A to Z from, you know, from horror, horror movies to 
horror horror plays to uh, I mean, you name it. You know, theaters are plays. People's apartments become theaters. I mean, it's yeah, it's all over the place. Pandemonium, but you know, it's, yeah, it is heaven. <laughs> it's three weeks. Yeah, three weeks of nonstop theater, and you got Broadway plays. A lot of comedians, big stars come there. So it's it's for three weeks. The city's basically shut down almost for theater. A lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the British uh, Edinburgh people they hate it when it. Some people love it. Some people hate it. But um, I mean, it's very Shakespearean. You go out there. You have to market for your play. You have. I mean, you. No one knows who you are. It's thirty for a hundred plays. And so what people mm -hmm. do, you get a magazine, you know, and and you get this magazine, and then people, some people, you take out some, you take out some press, you know, you take out a little section, you pay for a little section. Get you know performing at the Zoo Theater, the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, you know, this dates and and you hope someone find you hope your name is catchy enough. You hope you had enough money to pay for a big enough piece in that magazine. Um, and that magazine, you pay for the you pay for you pay for it for the whole three weeks, but every week they 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 put every week as plays get reviewed, they start putting in the reviews and the stars mm -hmm. into the plays. So yeah. if you get reviewed, you get stars, you start people start noticing you. So I had that review that I could use in my little bio, you know, with the Huffington Post that I put a little pull quote in it. Mm -hmm. So it's that brought some awareness. Um, and as yep. you can see, as I'm telling the stories, little steps, they start stacking on right. top of each other, right? Mm -hmm. And so then I have this review and this little piece of section. I still have the magazine where it, um, I have it up there. Uh, uh, I don't, but uh, yeah, I do. It's right there. Uh, it's painted on the wall. But um, so people started to come in. And so when I first, it is very common. In, in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe to have uh, five people. If you have five people in your theater, you've done good. Yeah. And there's 3,500. I think now it's even more now. I think now it's like 5,000. I mean, I think they're trying to they're trying to cap it now. It's like the New York Marathon. It's just got into Yeah, you, can, you got to cap it at some point. It's just, yeah. Yeah, there's just not enough it's space. space. There's not enough space, yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and it's and also in Scotland, it's, which is cool, it's very uncommon if your play sucks it's completely acceptable for people to stand up and walk out of your play. Like right. that is it. If they don't want to, it's because there's so much theater, like people are, it, it's just, it's over the years, over the decades, it's just developed this tradition. Like I am not going to waste an hour sitting in this play because mm -hmm. I want to go see something else. Right. So I was, um, uh, I was getting my wife had family there and she was letting people know. So I always had like, you know, six, seven people in there, which was good. I felt good about it. You know, that first week, at the end of that first week, somebody from the Amnesty International Awards came in. They had heard about the play somehow. Um, and I guess they saw the, the, the quote, the American soldier, and they, they decided to come in. And they, out of the 3,500 shows, they, they shortlisted 100 shows. They were the shows to come watch. Mm -hmm. Mine was, and they nominated me for an Amnesty International Award. So six shows got the award. 100 got uh, nominated out of 3,500. But what, what's really critical about that is that award gets into that magazine, right? So yeah. now people are looking for, they're looking for reviews, they're looking for stars, and you get stars. You get one star, two, one out of five. Five is great, one sucks. So everyone's passing up one-star reviews. You know, yeah. ah, star sucks, sucks. Oh, three-star, ah, that's kind of interesting. Oh, there's a three-star, you know, Romeo and Juliet. I'll go check that out, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the, the Amnesty International section, right? And then people are like, oh, these are 100 shows here that have been shortlisted. And so then, of course, everyone 
starts looking at names and they gravitate to a certain play for a certain reason. And the day, I think I got that award on a, I didn't even know I got it. My director told me I got it on a, I think it was on a Saturday. I got the award and my director put it on Facebook. He says, I want to congratulate Doug. Uh, he had two plays that he had directed there at the Festival Fringe. He said, I want to congratulate these two, two of my, my actors who have been nominated for an Amnesty International Award. And so I reached out to him on Facebook. I was in Scotland. I'm like, what does that mean, man? Yeah. Been nominated for a pretty badass award, man. It looks like people are really digging your play. Mm-hmm. So on Sunday, I think it was Sunday because Monday was black. On Sunday, um, I was sold out. Wow. Uh, it, I remember my lighting designer saying, um, he goes, you have a line outside. And I said, what? He says, you have a line outside. I go, what do you mean? I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. Yeah. And, I was, and he says, you have, there's a line of people trying to come inside to see your play. And I had a really great picture. And it was, it was a line. I was sold out. And we sold out for the next two weeks. We were wow. constantly sold out. And yeah. um, that's when the reviews started to come in. You mm-hmm. know, people were reviewing it. The, Scot- the Scottish Times came in. Um, uh, everybody brought, you know, Broadway Baby, all these big reviewers. And so, of course, you started getting the stars. And then, you know, it just, it just compounds. Yeah. And so then I started posting this stuff. It was really exciting. And then I remember going to a baseball game with my director. And he was like, he's like, you know, um, well, he said, look, I'm going to have to be, you're, you're in a really tough spot right now because now you have something that's really successful and now you're not going to be able to put it away. So now you're going to have to find a way to keep it alive. And I don't know what that is for you, but um, you're not going to be able to put it away. And I didn't really understand what he was saying. Mm-hmm. And from all the success that I had in Scotland, I had another friend that told me, he goes, you're just at the beginning. And I was like, what? Because I had I've been thinking about the journey that I've been on from 2008 yeah. to that and to the all the zigzags. And he was saying, "No, you're just at the beginning, man." I, I don't know what you mean by that, but okay. So I was I had friends who were in theater, and I had a friend here in Houston that um, he was part of some regional theater here, some small theater here in Houston. And I was living in New York, and he said, uh, "You know, why don't you um, uh, why don't you bring that play here?" to uh, Houston and I said yeah I'd love to he goes I know it would do really well here and, and I know the theater will they would love to bring you down mm-hmm. so that was the beginning of the regional tour coming yeah. to Houston was the first um uh first stop for the play and I did it and we had I did two shows and we had two great shows and and then I remember getting a letter um I got this really powerful letter from a veteran. He said, you know, I saw your play, play, you know, so I did two shows and it, it, it did really well. And uh, th- this veteran wrote me this letter and it said, you know, I've served for 21 years. I'm a retired sergeant in, in, in the Marines. And, um, you know, my wife has never really appreciated uh, my service. And she comes from a well-to-do family and she just never really thought of it. But after seeing your play, she reached over and whispered in my ear how much she loved me and how proud she was of me. And I remember going, wow, it was the first letter that I really received from a vet. And I was really, it kind of brought me to tears. And um, and after I did it in Houston, um, I came back. Uh, now I really had my sea legs now, you know, now I felt like really confident. Now I felt like I had a play and mm-hmm. what can I do it? And so then um, 
we had a theater in Hoboken and the Hoboken local theater. And I said, look, I've got this play, you know, and someone said, you know, you should reach out to, you should do it here in Hoboken, man. Um, that's where I lived at. And um, so I reached out to them and um, I said, would you be interested? And we started talking and they said, yeah, let's do it for, a, you know, let's do it. Let's do a Friday, Saturday, Sunday run of it, you know? Yeah. And uh, uh, it went off really well. It went really well. I mean, we, I had three great houses and again, someone in the theater saw the play, had a connection with someone at the Kennedy Center <laughs> and said, you know, you should reach this play after the play and the Q and after the play as we're, you know, the lobby, she goes, you know, I know somebody in the, at the Kennedy Center. I think you should reach out to them. And at that time, that was like, you know, the Kennedy Center. I mean, that's like someone saying, you know, I think you can play pro ball. You should, you should try it for the NFL. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. In the theater world, Kennedy Center, yeah, especially here in the, in the United States. So, you know, you yeah. go to like UK, you got the national, the national theater, you know, that's like Mecca over there, but like Absolutely. here at Kennedy Center. Yeah. So, um, I, she gave me a name and I, I started researching and I started emailing her. Her name was Diane Ezrins. And, you know, we started playing, you know, email tag. And then uh, I didn't think anything was going to come of it, to be honest with you. Uh, and then, you know, Trump got elected in 2016. And then she sent me an email. She goes, here, here are three dates. You know, we'd like to bring you on one of these three dates. Which one would you like best? And I got on, I spoke to her on the phone. She said, well, let's just talk on the phone. And I told her, you know, why the play was important and what I thought about the play. And she had a friend who uh, who had taken his life from PTSD. And so she was really moved by it. So she gave, she, she said yes. And as they say, the rest is history. I performed yeah. at the Kennedy Center on the inauguration day of 2016. Mm -hmm. um, and it, um, it, uh, it was, I mean, that was, it was an amazing performance. I mean, first of all, when Trump got elected, DC was electric. You know, you had the Women's March, people protesting for him, people protesting against him. I mean, it was like yeah. DC was on was electric. Um, I had a full house, man. I had like I had like three hundred and fifty people, man. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was crazy. It was like, oh my god, where have I landed on? Yeah. Um, and I've been to the Kennedy Center twice. They brought me back in twenty nineteen. But you know, once you did it, then I did it at the Kennedy Center, and and then from there it just took off. It just, yeah. um, it I started people hear about it, and they would book me, and kind of like the Stephen Lang story that I told you before. You know, uh, you know, it's, I mean, I've been, I mean, I've I've been to, I think it's thirty four cities now, twenty two, twenty three states. Uh, I mean, and at this point, the play has expanded to not just you know american revolution this includes veterans yeah. from across all eras all branches and correct. family yeah correct it had been Every flushed conflict. out to this yeah yeah it's been flushed out and i'm still trying to flush it out i mean it's, right now it's 14 characters i play 14 characters men women and children uh, uh every conflict it's the only conflict that i don't do is the korean war which is ironic or symbolic or you know, like the forgotten war but yeah when I was in that rush to create this thing, to put it together, I had two letters, you know, um, I had one from Korea and one from World War II, a guy who fought in Iwo Jima. And I was like, well, I can't leave out World War II because people are going to be like, dude, did you forget something? You know? <laughs> right. So I, and I never, when I, when I stuffed it together, I never thought that I would still be doing it. You know, I thought I'd get back to it. So there's always a Korean vet that brings it up, you know, but, um, you know, who knows where it goes for in the future, but, uh, I'm, I've crafted two, I have two female monologues that I want to put in 
Um, and that's the next step for me to do the play. And, um, but yeah, I mean, that's, now it's 85 minutes, you know, and I've worked on it and I've reworked things around. I've moved things around and I'm still moving things around. And it's kind of growing now in a way that's really interesting and exciting. And, um, you know, every year that I think the play is done, um, I get more bookings. You know, I mean, the last year, I mean, I performed through COVID. I mean, I was in New Orleans during the election, right during COVID. People, people were there with masks on. Yeah. Um, last year, I mean, this year, I mean, sure if I had this year, I mean, this year was so busy. I mean, I think I've, I think by the end of this year, I'll be doing seven cities. And last year was, last year was busy as well. And I already have potentially two bookings for 20, uh, 2023. Well, I know so, we'd love to, to get you to Pittsburgh. Uh, Western PA is, I think, the second, one of the top three highest uh, in terms of veterans, uh, you know, yeah. concentration of veterans here in Western PA. So I, I think it would play really well here. Yeah, no, I would love to come to Western PA. And, and now that, and now that mean you have a connection, I mean, this, that what's been really cool about this play, another story about this play that, you know, I don't really talk about too much, but obviously I do a set of letters every time, right? I do a set of stories. And what's really amazing is what's happening in the play is that the Q and A after the play is what becomes even becomes the second act of the play. Right. You get to hear these really emotional, really powerful stories that, I mean, some vets tell stories that they've never told before. Yeah. And it's only because they've been moved to open up and talk that they tell these stories. And so it's, it's become this really, you know, therapeutic, really emotional moment. And, um, and in, in the journey of doing this play, I've become friends with so many vets, like really good friends with a lot of vets from different branches, from different generations from, uh, I mean, I, I got a letter here from a, the guy who, <laughs> he always writes me such a sweet guy, but he, he wrote me a, uh, a letter when he, and he heard that I was stepping in for Stephen uh, Lang for Beyond Glory. And, um, you know, I become I become these friends with these letters with these with these vets, and they stay in contact with me, and they reach out to me, and they thank me, and and uh, uh, and I've got many stories. And what's also really cool, besides the Q and A, is that I've become now because I've been doing this play for so long, I've become friends with some of the family members of some of the letters that I do, mm -hmm. and I would have never thought that. Like the uh, Eleanor Wimbish letter who I found in a book called Love Letters, War Letters to, War's Love Letters, I think it was called. Um, I, you know, I became friends with her, 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 her daughters. Uh, and I'm friends with them on Facebook now. And they thank me for doing her play and, and doing for their brother's play. I mean, they're, they're almost 70 or you know, going 70 now. I've become friends with their granddaughters. I've become, I did the play in Cape Cod and I, I tell the story of Kevin and Joyce Lucy who lose their son Jeffrey to suicide and somebody in Cape Cod, Cape Cod said, uh, I know that letter. And a lot of times people would say that to me, but they, what they were saying is that's exactly like what my grandfather said, or that's exactly like what my mother said, or it's exactly what my father said. Yeah. But in this case, it was actually, they knew that family of that story that I had told. Uh, Jeffrey Joyce Lucy, they lost their son to suicide off from Iraq, and uh, I connected with them. And you know, they sent me a book, and we're on friends on Facebook, and we sent messages to each other. And um, 
I know the family members from some of the letters, you know, from World War One that I created. And in the process of doing the story, the Library of Congress reached out to me during 2018. Yeah. And they asked me to write a letter and um, um, I mean, to write a play to commemorate the uh, uh, 100 year centennial of, of World War One. This was 2018, which was 100 years, 1918. And for a lot of people who don't know, I'm sure you know, but Veterans Day was was created on November 11th because um, that was the that was the, the day of World War One ended. Right. Uh, it ended on November 11th. The 11th hour of the 11th yeah. day. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so I've had the opportunity. So I wrote a play um, called uh, "American's Journey Home," and and uh, it's based off of the diary of Irving Greenwald, who was a World War One. who was a, a Hungarian Jew up in Upper East Side and who fought in World War One. And his story was amazing too. He was part of the Lost Battalion. Lost Battalion was a battalion of World War One. To this day, I think the one of the battalions had the has received the most casualties in any conflict. Um, they, they made a movie about it with Ricky Schroeder, yeah. called the Lost Battalion. He was part of that. So, um, yeah. So I've been connected with these, you know, uh, friends and these, these people that I, in a million years, I thought that I would never be connected with. Mm-hmm. Which, what would you say? What would you say in this journey that you've been on is the thing that you have learned most about the American soldier or veterans or, or military service? Uh, what really sticks out to you? What has really bubbled up to the top? Um, there's a couple of things, but I mean, I think the biggest one is, you know, there are a lot of themes when I was creating the play, there was themes in my research from the very early days. There was a couple of themes that always would always come to the top. One was uh, discipline was one, teamwork was another one, and brotherhood. And at the end, at, at from the Civil War on, all these conflicts at the end, all these uh, soldiers, um, they stopped fighting for the war. They start fighting for each other. And that was true in the Middle East when guys would do four, five, six deployments. They couldn't, they felt so guilty that they were back home that they would go back, they would go back, they would go back, they would go back. And so, um, the, and those three, I have three, the other thing that people talk to, two other things, but I, I don't talk too much about, which I've never found a way to do it is, uh, uh, marching and food. They all hate marching and they all hate food, the food in, in the military. But uh, but the three themes that I talk about uh, in my play are, I start off with, I have one character that comes out. He's the only character that comes out multiple times. He comes out in the beginning, in the middle, in the very end. And he talks about discipline, teamwork, and he finishes the play with brotherhood. Yeah. But, um, and besides those themes, the thing that I, that I think that I've taken away from the play is that, um, as a nation, we've been very blessed that we don't ever, we don't, we have an abundance and I knock on wood and I hope this keeps going, you know, uh, not to get too political, but um, where things are going politically, it is steering people away. But un, un, up until now, we've never had, we've had an, an abundance of men and women who've been young men and women who've been willing to sign up and go fight for this country. And that was true in the revolution. That was true in the civil war. Uh, definitely true in World War One. Irving Greenwald is a Hungarian Jew. You know, I mean, every you know he the Jews. People don't really understand this, but Jews were really persecuted, uh, especially in New York. And then people uh, sometimes the ignorance of people, but people thought the Jews had uh, horns. They literally thought you know, and I learned this through my research. I mean, they literally thought the Jews had horns. Um, 
and they were persecuted. So a lot of Jews, um, uh, they signed up right away to to fight in World War One, and a lot of Jews fought, signed up to fight in World War Two. And and um, it, you know the Vietnamese guy that I the guy from Vietnam that I told you about. You know, there's there, there's always there's never been an abundant um, of young men and women um, who have who have been willing to put on the uniform and fight for each other. And and there's amazing stories there. You know, there's I've never found a way how to put this in there. There's an amazing story in the Tet Offensive of uh, of uh, a white kid from the south and a and a black kid from up northeast, um, basically d choosing to die together to defend their unit. Each of each of them telling them to pull away and they'll cover the rest. And none of and they 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 didn't want to leave each other's side and they both died. They both died together. Um, I mean, those are, those are stories that um, that I I just keep getting reminded of that the bravery and the courage of young men and women to put on their uniform. To go fight for this nation, and I tend to believe that if someone put their boots on this soil again, you would have the same reaction. Um, um, I think Winston Churchill had the best quote: "You know, Americans always tend to find that they always find the way to do the right thing when it's the last thing they have to choose from." Um, so that's been a very powerful lesson for me, and um, and that's one of the things that I like to remind. It's really special when I get to perform the play for younger people because they're. You know, one, they're reminded of what American history is and all the conflicts we've been part of and, and what great, how great uh, this country is. And, you know, you know, not just young kids, but a lot of older people, a lot of people don't even know when, you know, I mean, I can put a bet, I can make a bet with you right now. You can walk outside your house and grab 10 people and ask them when Vietnam World War One was, and you're going to get all kinds of crazy answers. I yeah, mean, completely. And not just from young people, from older people as well. Yeah. Um, and so when I performed the play for a younger audience, even high school or college kids, um, there was, they're great audiences. And the, the one thing I always get back from them is, you know, really sincere interest in the conflicts. Like, mm -hmm. wow, I didn't know we fought in so many wars. Wow. I really want to study World War One. I'd like to learn more about Vietnam and, and, and it becomes, you know, it goes, you know, to, you know, how we're teaching kids, but, you know, when they get to see this play in a in a when they get to experience these stories in a three-dimensional way compared to uh, what reading it out of a textbook yeah you know their imaginations are woken up their interest is woken up they're 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 they're, they're they become you know their patriotism is almost woken up out of them you know when they see these stories and yeah and their passions and and that's a really, I've been really blessed to be able to give that along to young kids who have seen the play and, and said, man, you know, I hope I can find something that, that I'm that passionate about as you are. And I, you know, we all have it. You just have to go after it. I think the success of the play, you know, people always come up to me. I said, you know, you just have to be, you have to be afraid of the suck, not be afraid of the suck because you're going to suck. And if you could just get over that, you know, and not worry about the suck, um, then again, you built that foundation that we talked about in the very beginning, you know, yeah. and then from there you can grow. You can, another thing that I always tell people, it's so much easier to pitch content than to pitch an idea, right? And that's one of the things that I've learned in creating this play. Once I had a play, it was easier to pitch it to people and to organizations and to festivals and to theaters compared yeah. to when I just had an idea and I was trying to find a director because they're like, well, I don't know where you want to go with this. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to 
you know, be, not be afraid of the suck. And then from there, you will only get better, right? Because once you suck once, you know, and then you can you can step back from it and look at it and analyze it and work on it and fix it and, you know, book the theater, you know? Yeah. Buy- well, there's also something to be said about, and, and I'm wondering how you felt about this, is that as a playwright, there's a point during the production process uh, the building of the play that it suddenly isn't yours anymore. Like suddenly yeah. it's it's involving all of these people and they're having input and there's a change that happens there. How did you deal with that sort of that evolution? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, it, you, with open arms, mm-hmm. you deal with it with open arms. It's only making you better. I mean, when I would do the play, I mean, the play has many ghosts. It has the Craig Williams ghost. It has the guy who told me to write the play. It has Patrick Lillis. Uh, uh, um, Your wife. yeah, My wife. And Wynne Hanman. I used to take this play, you know, uh, into Wynne Hanman's class. I should, you know, kind of tell this story. So when I was working on this play, I was studying with Wynne Hanman. Wynne Hanman is, um, was a very well-respected theater, uh, theater director and acting coach in Manhattan. He passed away during COVID at 93, but he was... Uh, if you look him up, I mean, he taught everybody, Dustin mm-hmm. Hoffman, Al Pacino, and, uh, you know, there's so many layers to this play, but I got into his class when I was in New York. I mean, when I was living here in Houston, I was going to move to New York. Someone told me to apply to Win Hammond's class, and and uh, and I had this one uh, veteran monologue inside me. I had Tally and Son. It's the Vietnam guy who passes away, and he comes back to see his family, and his family has moved on. And so I did this play in college um, and it's how I got to Ole Miss. And, um, and so I had this monologue in my back pocket and it's the monologue I did for Wynn Hanman and I got accepted into his class, which was a really hard class to get accepted into. I, to this day, I, I don't even know how I got into it, but I used to perform pieces of what I was trying to create in his class. He used to teach, at, he had a, he had a, he had a theater called the American Place Theater, which is where the roundabout is in Manhattan right now. Mm-hmm. And um, in the 60s, all these theaters were given these 25-year leases by the mayor uh, because they were trying to revitalize New York and New York yeah. was really heading in a, in a bad area. So they gave these 25, huge 25-year leases to bring art back into the city. And um, But once those leases ended, you know, commercial theaters jumped in and they took it over. So the roundabout had uh, taken over the American Place Theater. And it was a you know bitter ending for Wynn, but um, I became really good friends with Wynn. And, and when I saw Beyond Glory, I actually saw it at the American Place Theater, which was Wynn's theater. And I saw Stephen Lang's play. And I remember thinking, man, I want to create something like that. you know. And this was like in 2000 and s- 2012, 2013. And I was like, I was really inspired by that. So fast forward to this coming November, to know that something that I didn't have now, my play is going to step in for Stephen Lang's play in mm-hmm. Ohio. It's kind of a f- huge full circle, you know. Totally. Damn. Yeah. So while you're doing the play, you know, veterans come up to you and they give you a piece of information, and you have different, you know, I have ghosts. That's right, ghosts. I have ghosts from Wynn Hanman and Greg Lucas and all these different people, and they they give you pieces. And you know, Bruce Lee's favorite quote, you know, use what what works, throw the way away, throw away the rest, you know, mm-hmm. and that is very true in art. You know, you use what people give you, and you throw away the rest which yeah. you resonate with. And so the play has these different things. And also veterans would tell me things, you know, vets would say, hey, you know, 
make sure your make sure your shoelaces are tucked in into your boots. Hey, make sure they're very well polished. Hey, when you hold a fifty caliber machine gun, hold it like this because I was holding it like it was holding it like this. And then it's like this, you know. Uh-huh. So they they teach you these nuances. So now that the plate, you know, fast forward, you know, it's so sharp, it's so tight because it's mm-hmm. been inputted by so many different people and so many different vets that. Um, and I'm always looking to grow, you know, and uh, I'm always looking to find new ways to, you know, to reinvent it, uh, which yeah. is what I'm doing now with the female pieces, because just like a house, you always have to maintain a house. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't just buy a house and stay in it. You know, you have to, you know, redo the roof, redo the lawn, redo the what the gutters, everything. And it's an analogy, you know, if, if it's not growing, it's dying. And so yeah. you have to find a ways to keep it growing. And that's true with um, with your art. You know, you have to find ways as an actor, as an artist, as a playwright, to constantly be growing, constantly be pushing, constantly be reinventing, um, or else uh, you're dying. And so, um, you take it open. You take it with open arms, and you take it, use what works, and, and throw away the rest. Awesome. Um, well, Douglas, this is uh, this has been really educational and inspirational. Uh, certainly, um, I, I really hope I'm gonna connect you with a couple of theaters here in Pittsburgh. I hope we're able to bring a production of this, you into Pittsburgh to be able to present awesome. this to our veterans here, people that are watching the scuttlebutt outside of Pittsburgh. Um, I'm going to have the link for the American soldier and for your website here in the chat or uh, in the description. Um, so awesome. you know, please check it out. Uh, this sounds like a very worthwhile production to bring to your city. If you've not heard of it yet, uh, I hope that you hear more uh, coming out of this, uh, this conversation today. Um, to our audience, please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know when we release new episodes. And if you have a question for Douglas or want to be connected with him, please, please feel free to connect with me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Douglas, I want to thank you so much for your time today and for coming on the podcast. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me on. And for every vet listening, thank you for your service and your family's service. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank both of our sponsors, the first being DND Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage. They began as a small hauling and used auto parts operation in the Pittsburgh area in the late 1970s, but they've grown into a full-service metal recycling company with two locations, Lawrenceville and Tarentum. D&D accepts all types of metal, both ferrous and non-ferrous, that may be generated by industrial manufacturing, construction, and demolition, small commercial entities, as well as individual customers. They have a wide variety of material handling equipment and are capable of managing any type of job in a timely and efficient manner. You can contact them for quotes and availability at D&D. That's D&D Auto Salvage. Dot com. Uh, thank you so much to DND. Uh, they've been a sponsor for quite some time, and we really appreciate their support. Uh, the second being Tobacco Free Adagio Health. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and to getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health. So they want people to quit, and they have classes and nicotine replacement therapy and a popular quit line, which is the easiest number to remember ever 1 800 quit now. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. Finally, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, work, and play. You can learn all of what Tobacco-Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org, or you can watch our recent episode with Tobacco-Free Adagio Health on the Scuttlebutt, uh, where they talk about a lot of the programs that they offer for those who are looking to quit. Thank you to both of our sponsors for their continued support of the Scuttlebutt podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks.